From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. It costs, let me have a look here now, it's €35 Euro per person. It's 20 minutes of rage. Is it ever possible to eat chocolate and be healthy, Louise? Yes, I think it is. I think it is, Good. definitely. <laughs> yes, let's just, we can finish it there. We leave it at that, Claire. yes. A good peace of mind check in this. It, you know, if you think you've seen it in Home Alone, don't do it. <laughs> right, that's, that's probably quite a good safety tip. <laughs> Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, it's beginning to look a lot like a chocolatey Christmas. Why we don't see wonky vegetables in shops and how to prevent accidents in the home this holiday season. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's... I'm fine. On this morning's nine o'clock show monologue, Brendan Courtney began with a dispute between a dog owner and a parent from the online outrages. What would you do in this very modern conundrum? What would you do? I think I know what I'd do. Anyway, this uh, dog owner has a dog called Charlotte and he's been living in his current home in New York uh, for just over a year and he has the same routine every evening. He lets his dog out to the backyard to do her business and then he calls Charlotte back in like you would do, come back in the dog sniffing around the garden. Recently, this man posted his conundrum. He stuck his head out the window and called the dog's name, Charlotte. But this time, along with the familiar sounds of the dog running up the porch, uh, he heard a voice shouting, why are you calling my daughter? Ooh. First he thought it might be the neighbours having a bit of a spat or whatever. Anyway, he claims then that it, there was a big loud bang on his front door and his neighbour came in screaming at him, questioning why he was calling his two-year-old daughter, called Charlotte. Aha! Uh-huh. He said, oh, my dog's name is Charlotte. And the, the daddy of Charlotte, the little girl, rolled his eyes and said, well, you better change the name of that dog. He doesn't want my daughter getting confused and running out of the house. Hmm. So he said, well, that's not going to happen. I'm not only living here longer, but the dog is older (laughs) and has the name longer. So, and he didn't like, obviously, strangers making demands. Um, So he said, no, I'm not going to change your name. Change my dog's name. So the man said, a human child obviously has priority over a dog for a name. Would you change your name, the name of your dog, if your neighbour's child was called Charlotte and you called your dog Charlotte? I don't know. I don't know. Um, anyway, he, he he got a load of support online to not change the dog's name. But I feel pet owners, dog owners are a little more proactive <laughs> when it comes to the animal rights. But um, yeah, what a very modern conundrum. A modern conundrum without a satisfactory resolution, alas. And this next item, well, it's for the birds. I have a bird feeder, but I don't know how to use it. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's possibly up there with one of the most stupid things I've ever said you put bird feed in it I get it okay but I well I don't know where to hang it I live in an apartment and we don't really know what to do that's kind of what I mean anyway feeding birds is good for you uh, some American research has come out telling us uh, this Professor Ashley Dare is a, conserva- a, a conservation social scientist interesting uh, she is conducting research and she wants to develop a deeper understanding of the relationship between bird feeding and human well-being. First of its type, this study, because people were not only reporting what they see at their bird feeders, but they're also talking about their emotional responses to it. It's quite cute, isn't it? So she's quoted as saying, it's pretty fun because citizen science projects focus normally on natural or physical science, but we're able to look at the human piece of it now. And she has her own, excuse me, special connection to birds stemming from her family's practice because her mother was a bird feeder. And she said, she can say they'd go on vacation and her mother would cut the vacation short to get back to feed her birds. So 
she's lived with someone who's really into bird feeding and seen how important it can be to them. Do you, do you have a bird feeder on the go? Should I start feeding my birds? To- Let them eat cake. Or maybe a steady diet of the modern world's favourite thing. Gossiping can be good for you. A study from Stanford University reveals that trash talk, venting or gossiping are important tools that help us socially orientate ourselves. Mm-hmm. Really? Okay, so the uh, researchers who conducted this quite long study into how much trash talk and where is the line say that gossip can help us define the norms and boundaries of a workplace or social circle. Gossip helps people bond. It's interesting, isn't it? In part by positioning those who partake in opposition to those they're gossiping about. This creates an in-group and an out-group. This doesn't sound too healthy to me. So what separates trash talk and gossip from meanness? This is a very important point in the in the study because with all the study they conducted, they still say what crosses the line is more of an art than science. It depends on the context and your relationship to the listener. Bad-mouthing a colleague to your boss is different to letting off steam at a casual happy hour with friends. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Um, and while the report sort of says it, it helps with social cohesion, it warns, a word warning, too much trash talking can do damage to both the speaker and the listener. If you frequently put people down, your own reputation can suffer as others lose respect for you and trust in you. And even if the trash talk is not about them, the, re- the research says uh, it creates an atmosphere of suspicion where listeners are left wondering if they're the subject of such bad mouthing when you're not around. That is kind of interesting, isn't it? So when they asked, is gossip good for you? But they kind of evaded the answer and said, well, we don't know. But uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that y- you do bond over a little bit of a natter, don't you, sometimes? So you've got to watch that. That doesn't spill over into meanness. Heaven forfend. OK, what about some positivity? From the Kerry man. That's a newspaper, kids. No less. Sinead Kelleher tells us the staff at Kerry Library got a big surprise this week when a book was returned 20 years late. <laughs> I, well, of course, I'm, I used to return my books physically and walk into the library, but of course the book was probably just dropped in the returns box. But uh, in, the, in this box, it was Love Letters from Cell 92, which is actually, uh, a, uh, the book covers a love story of a theo- theologian hanged by the Nazis in 1945 for taking part in a plot to kill Hitler. But it's his love letters to his uh, lover. And so somebody took that book out over 20 years ago. And in the back are Deb's tickets for a Deb's in 2004. We can't really read it. We can't zoom in on it. But the librarian there, Neve Doyle of Kerry Library, is holding the book. Love letters from Cell 92 and the two Debs tickets from 2004. My Debs was in 1988. So 2004 Debs, that's somebody who's probably around 34 now, probably. Yeah, so that's interesting. Anyway, if it's you, your your mum returned the book or your dad returned the book. So you're off the hook. It's nice though, isn't it? Although, interestingly, the ad on this, a nice little bit of research from Sinead in The Kerryman. The book, 20 years late, while unusual, is far from the record. Someone previously returned a book after 67 years. Remarkable that it could take anyone so long to finish a book. And if that gag is the sort of thing to make you cross, maybe you need to visit... Ireland's first rage room launches in Ballyfermot. Do you find this time of year stressful? (laughs) Do you think smashing plates helps ease stress? 
we can't be denied, can it? It's, there is something therapeutic. Well, that's why Ireland has opened its first rage room. Now, there was one before everybody starts shouting at us, imported down in Armagh, but this is the first one to open in the Republic. Uh, what can people expect from a session in the rage room? It's a space to de-stress and naturally given the name to unleash your inner rage. Uh, you, a speaker is provided and you choose exactly what soundtrack to rage to. And there are smashable items which include anything from glassware to crockery to printers, TVs, monitors and copiers. <laughs> you can bring your own items to smash. <laughs> it costs, let me have a look here now, it's 35 euro per person. It's 20 minutes of rage. And... Uh, Go for glory. Yeah, the Rage Room. I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find it. Sounds like a bit of crack. And just to say, it's Rage with Manners because they've teamed up with a recycle company to ensure it's all taken care of appropriately. It's good to hear, isn't it? The Rage Room. Yeah, watch out for the long queue of RTE employees waiting for their turn. And that's where we leave Brendan Courtney's monologue from this morning's nine o'clock show. Best to get out while things are still relatively calm, right? Tis the season to eat lots of chocolate, but can we ever do that in a healthy way? Dietitian Louise Reynolds from the Irish Nutrition and Dietetic Institute joined Claire Byrne this morning to answer the burning question for all us chocoholics this Christmas. Is it ever possible to eat chocolate and be healthy, Louise? Yes, I think it is. I think it is Good. definitely. Yes, let's just we can finish it there. We leave it at that, Claire. Yes, um, of course. You know, we we talk a lot about you know chocolate at Christmas time. It's really enjoyable. It's part of the festivities. And you mentioned guilt around food there, and that's something that I really don't like to see people. You know, getting anxious around food and eating something. If you're going to have chocolate, eat it, enjoy it. Um, you know, but maybe don't eat it all day, every day. Keep an eye on the portion size and then look at the types of chocolates you choose because not all chocolate chocolate is created mm-hmm. equally. There are some that do have some health benefits over others. So, for example, the darker the chocolate, the more cocoa that's in there and the more of these sort of health benefits than white chocolate. So there's quite a big difference. You know? difference so yeah. you've got the white chocolate, milk chocolate and then dark chocolate. But we have so. some some brands now and some types of chocolate that have had a bit of a, a makeover. Chocolate in general has had a makeover, hasn't it? And yeah, it's branded as healthy. That's right. And also I suppose there's the whole fair trade side of it as well, you know, because the chocolate and cocoa industry has notoriously been one where it might be, you know, kind of a black market and not, you know, done in the best way. So now there are fair trade chocolate so again that helps people feel well I'm if I'm making the choice maybe I'm doing something that's I'm paying a little bit extra but maybe I'm buying a better type of chocolate and supporting the workers so there's a whole range and when we look at health and nutrition um, you know there's vegan chocolates now as well because there's an interest in more vegan products so when you actually look at what's in chocolate what has created a little bit of kind of interest or a buzz around nutrition is the antioxidants which again are also people may have heard in red wine and that's another reason why people think oh maybe a little bit of red wine is okay but these antioxidant compounds polyphenols would be the kind of the the chemical name or flavonoids they do have a a benefit and when chocolate has been researched around an ounce of chocolate which is about 25 grams so it's not a huge amount of chocolate Um, you know there was one study which looked at blood pressure and um, the the participants who had an ounce of dark chocolate which would be over 70% Solid. So people will see often on the chocolate bar the number, you know, and the mm-hmm. darker or the higher the number, 
the more bitter the chocolate often gets as well. So therefore there is less sugar in there. It's a stronger taste um, and you tend to eat less of that. So you can't eat much of that. No, exactly. It's like it's the taste of chocolate. It can often help with a craving for something, you know, sweet or a dessert, a small amount of very dark chocolate. So in this study, the people who ate the small amount of chocolate every day over eight weeks compared to the, another group where they had the same amount of white chocolate, the, the group with the dark chocolate did have lower blood pressure. So when they, you know, obviously they um, counteract or they uh, correct for everything else, all of the other factors. So there does seem to be a benefit there. And that's down to the antioxidants yeah. in the chocolate. So when you say white chocolate, do you mean the actual white chocolate or do you mean milk chocolate? Uh, no, in this study it was white chocolate. But that's not really chocolate at all, though. No, it's it? really, there's very little. There's no cocoa in there. It's only yeah. the cocoa butter that it's made from. So the okay. cocoa bean part, you know, is the cocoa itself. The cocoa powder isn't there, which is obviously where a lot of these benefits are. Ah, OK. But so it's, milk, in, it's in the cocoa bean, is it? Yes, the, that's it where is. the benefit's yeah. coming from. Yeah. There are any. Exactly. And also dark chocolate compared to milk chocolate. So that's the one. The milk chocolate is probably the, the most popular with children. <laughs> it's got the sweeter taste. <laughs> the nicest. Okay. Let, look, well, that's a, that's let's a personal just preference. Be yeah. about it. Like <laughs> so, the dark chocolate's fine if you're trying to be good, but it is bitter and you can only have one piece and you, ugh, yeah. Okay. Milk <laughs> chocolate is you're where it's at. Milk chocolate, yeah. yeah. So the milk chocolate, you could say, well, there's more calcium in there, which there is. And, you know, we've all seen the, the ads with the glass of milk being poured in. So milk chocolate does generally, not always, but a lot of them will have milk added. So there's a little bit of calcium in there if you're looking for the nutritional benefits. <laughs> but there will be less of the um, the antioxidant compounds. Also, dark chocolate, surprisingly, has quite a bit of fibre in it. Um, a bar of dark chocolate or 100 grams. And in fact, I have a 100 gram bar there. It's the, it's the kind of slim bar and it's about the size of, you know, kind of bigger than an iPhone. But that kind of slim bar is 100 grams. And that has like almost 12 grams of fibre in it mm-hmm. in the dark chocolate. But you couldn't, which, eat, you couldn't eat all of that. No, you couldn't. But even if you had two squares, it's about two grams of fibre. Yeah. Whereas the whole bar, the same size of the milk chocolate um, would have... Uh, only about two grams of you know fiber in the whole bar. Big so difference. A big difference. But there's a lot more calcium. So, but at the same time, I don't think people should be choosing their chocolate based on nutrition. Really, eat the chocolate that you want to eat. Enjoy it. Move on. Don't feel guilty about it. Just don't you know, eat, don't eat the, the whole, whole box. box. Yeah. <laughs> don't which, eat the whole box. You know, but you, you did mention that the boxes are getting smaller, which is another thing. And the amount of boxes that are coming into the house because they're cheaper now. So you just are, have to watch it. You really yeah, do. I yeah, mean, you I've, do. I've particularly for children. They've started appearing now. You know, you might get the odd gift of a, of a box of chocolates and it's very hard to, yeah. you know, tell people to keep away from them. Exactly. You know, I week. think, you know, anybody who remembers the original kind of big, the Christmas tin. box or tin, you know, and I've seen the tins are coming back now again and they, they are more expensive and they're a sort of bigger volume of chocolate in them. But the smaller sort of tubs of chocolates now, um, you know, they're not going to last all over the Christmas season the way the t- big tins did before. I think mm-hmm. every family got one big tin yeah. at Christmas. And the toppy pennies were always left in the bottom of it. Oh, you went that? for those, those purple ones. We didn't go for those ones. <laughs> the blue you know, ones. The, you know, the, the flat. <clears throat> um, were they Quality Street, the toppy yes, pennies? Yes, that's right. And they yeah. were the ones that nobody wanted. Well, we, was, we used to go for roses in our house, you see, so we didn't okay. have the toffee pennies. pennies. But again, the coffee ones, I think, were always left that nobody oh, yes. wanted them. They were left So, too. you know, that's the same. But there were there was quite a, they were heavier. There was more in them. Whereas now there's a smaller volume but they're cheaper so people are bringing yeah. them more often and you know they were, so they were rare you know they, they were, were rare, rare and treat. the same goes for the selection boxes I think because again that was something that you know probably Santa would bring a selection box and you may have got one from a, a godparent but really now 
they are coming into the house a lot. If someone comes to visit, they might bring selection boxes. You know, they're kind of added on to presents. They're getting them at, you know, GAA and in school and at the end of all of these activities. So for a small child, there could be a lot of chocolate coming in. So that's a good opportunity to kind of say, let's again, we've spoken about this before after Halloween, let's bake Mm -hmm. with the chocolate or let's share it around amongst the family because you don't really want you know, that volume of chocolate. So while I'm saying chocolate, there are benefits to certain types of chocolate and it's something to enjoy, but you do need to keep an eye on the amount, particularly yeah. with, you know. Just on that, if somebody's sitting down and they have one of those tubs and they want a cup of tea and, you know, yeah. like, <clears throat> what is a portion? Yeah. A sensible portion. Well, of a those sensible portion. Well, you know, when you look at the the amount of kind of calories and fat in those, if you want to sit down and have a, a snack that was kind of, you know, 120 calories, you're probably only talking about two of the chocolates. Um, with a cup of tea, uh, which is, is kind of diff- which is difficult to do, which is difficult <laughs> to do if they're open there and they're, you know, you're watching a movie which is two hours long. Um, but that mm-hmm. would be, you know, that would be a portion. But then it is Christmas as well. You heard the expert. Make sure you keep a big box of sweets by your side whenever you watch a movie this Christmas. That's the gist of what she said, right? Dietitian Louise Reynolds managing to be not all bah humbug about chocolate with Claire Byrne this morning. Fair play. Margaret called Liveline for the first time this afternoon to tell Joe Duffy what she witnessed on the streets of Dublin City yesterday afternoon. It was off Henry Street. It's it's north in the, the north side, but it's north, a very, north Dublin, very, yeah. very busy yeah. street. Henry Street, Moor Street, that whole area, very, very busy. What happened? So I worked in Dublin City Centre in that area for a very long time, for okay. 20 years, and I have witnessed all sorts throughout that time, good and bad, um, but Obviously, a lot of antisocial behaviour there, people drunk in the mornings, people openly injecting themselves, um, ongoing drug dealing in on the streets, uh, people stealing in shops in front of me and so on. And it's something you actually get used to. Uh, you mm-hmm. probably didn't have to, but I have to. <laughs> um, but for some reason, what happened yesterday knocked me to six. Um, so uh, yesterday at about 12.15, I was walking down throughout that area, uh, towards kind of the Arnott area, I was picking up a few Christmas gifts. Um, okay. So the, one of the main thoroughfares in, in Dublin, obviously, one of the main shopping districts. And was it um, just, she, what, what, how busy was it after 12 yesterday? Was it teaming? It or was, did, did, it was did, busy-ish. Yeah. More, certainly more busy than it would be on Monday normally. Um, and that's obviously because it was December and yeah. uh, people were out doing, doing some Christmas shopping and, and so on. So certainly it was busy. It wasn't thronged, but it was busy. Okay, what yeah. I mean is that um, at the... Um, you know, the bit of Christmas uh, market opens there on Henry Street itself. That's yeah. up. That's up and running, is it? With the cheeky charities and the selection boxes and the yeah, the makeup. all of that yeah, going yeah. on. Great. Yeah. So it's very, yeah. it's very busy. Okay, so you're yeah. so you're walking in that area, and what, and what did you witness? So I'm walking there at about twelve fifteen midday, just after midday. Um, I'm walking just towards, I suppose, Arnott's, um, mm-hmm. and to my right, I see some sort of an altercation going on at a, a shop. And it was an older security guard at the okay. shop. Um, like, he wasn't in particularly good shape, <laughs> like, as in he, he had a bit of weight on him. He wasn't some young muscular guy or anything like that. Uh, just a, 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 an older guy trying to do his job outside the street. Uh, and there was a man obstructing the entrance to his shop. Okay. Uh, so he asked him to move and I kind of stopped and a couple of people stopped. Um, and the guy suddenly just went, for want of a better word, ballistic. Um, so um, I just couldn't believe the violence that I witnessed thereafter. Um, against, the, uh, just to be clear, against the security guard. 
against the, the security, security guard. The security guard was, was the victim. The security guard was completely... The assailant, the assailant went ballistic uh, uh, on, on the security guard who, was just, the security who guard. was just doing his job. He was just doing his job. Okay. Now, actually, now explain to me how this, what, what you witnessed then with this... this so uh, what, I, what, what I witnessed then was obviously the assailant was under the influence of, I would say, uh, drugs firstly, I would say alcohol secondly, I would say a mixture of both. I, I don't know, uh, but I couldn't believe what I saw. Uh, so he got up, he punched him in the eyes, first of all. The security guard was wearing glasses, oh. so he smashed his glasses. Oh my he then punched him in the nose, um, full force, and blood was coming everywhere. And ah. I'm actually very, very squeamish myself, so I, yeah. I, 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 um, uh, I'm not sure if his nose was broken. Then for third measures, he punched him again and kicked him and kicked him across the street. Now, luckily enough, it was a pedestrian street, so he didn't have an oncoming car to hit him or a truck what or something mean, like Margaret, that. What do you mean, Margaret? What do you mean he kicked him across the street? Well, he kicked him in the stomach or, or whatever God. and punched him again and the man at that point fell. Um, so he was lying flat on his back in the middle of that street. Yeah. Um, and um, so um, I went over to him and I said, will I call you an ambulance? Which was probably... a stupid thing to say because the guy was concussed I think um, and, and blood so, everywhere as you say yes yeah so I, I tried to get my phone out and then another girl beside me had already rang emergency services right. and she was not from Ireland she was I think she was Brazilian actually uh, and she said to me what street are we on I told her the name of the street it's Moore's, I say it say it it's Moore's well I was told actually I'm moving on I want I want people to yeah, find sorry, out what it, happened it yesterday Moore's street, just yeah, yeah it was well, Moore's street, it's yeah, a very there's yeah. thousands of people on that Street. It's a busy well, I street. think I think the main point of the reason I rang in Joe was to make the point that this was the street that all this hassle happened on yeah. three years. Uh, sorry, two weeks ago. And um, but your researcher told me not to say. Yeah, that's the okay. Name well, of the things have that. things yeah. we've got a bit, okay. bit more information. Okay, so it was Henry so. Street I was on, and it was Moore Street that was to the right of me, and it was Moore Street the altercation happened on. Um, I walked down. Uh, so just feel for this. In, I just feel for this man. So do this I. man, so you say, in his, what, a, what age? By the way, it's just after 12 o'clock and you tell me this fellow was out of his head on drink and drugs. I would have said drugs more. I would say yeah, maybe but at 12, well. 12, 12 o'clock in the day, yeah. this man is doing his job in his 40s. He's not, He's as you said yourself, he's not a 22-year-old no. athlete or whatever. What age yeah. was the assailant? A couple of my friends asked me that and it's hard to tell because I would probably, if I looked at him without knowing, I would probably mm-hmm. say late 60s, but probably because he's had a hard life, he was probably maybe only late 50s. I don't know. Okay. But I tell you, he was very strong. <laughs> um, and was he bigger um, than, was he bigger, stockier than the security man? He wouldn't have had as much weight on him, yeah. but he was taller and um, he he was more, he just had... And you were saying, you were saying when when he punched the security guard in the face. This is yesterday, broad yeah. daylight in Dublin broad city centre, yeah. just yeah. after just after midday. He, yeah. he, he, when he punched a man in the face, obviously he could see the man was wearing glasses. So mm-hmm. I presume he smashed his glasses into his face. Yes. He then punched him in the nose and the mouth. Yeah. Was there fr- and blood everywhere? Was there force in the punch from what you saw, Margaret? Oh God, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this guy sure, wasn't this guy this guy wasn't pushing this chap with the security man away saying leave me alone. This wasn't this wasn't in a, in a, a violent assault. 
violent assault. In the middle um, of our capital city, in the middle of the day. In the middle of the day, yeah. And the fact that a foreign national had to, like, be... Well, it doesn't, well, it doesn't, yeah, but it doesn't matter who, who, who yeah, intervened. Thank but God you like, intervened. Thank God that other person intervened. Did anyone yeah. else intervene? Yeah, in the end, uh, a couple of the local guys on Moore Street, um, you know, uh, came mm. up and said, uh, come on, buddy, let, 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 let's, let's leave it, let's leave it. Uh, you know, and they kind of pulled him back a bit. And then he Sorry, got, pulled who back? Pulled the assailants. Oh God! So when they said, "Come on, buddy," they were saying this to the to the attacker. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very good at them. Yeah. Come on, buddy. (laughs) And you reckon they were his buddies? Well, well, that's what I was told when I finally left the street. A couple of them came up to me and said, "Ah, "It's all kicking off here again now, isn't it? It's kind of just accepted now around uh, that area." Pretty terrifying testimony on today's live line from Margaret telling Joe Duffy what she saw happening on the streets of our capital yesterday afternoon. Marco Dunahue from Cork Cycle for All spoke to Brendan Courtney this morning about the service that provides a cycling experience for anyone who's not able, for whatever reason, to cycle a bike on their own. Like we have tandem bicycles, we have tricycle tandems, yep. we have trikes, recumbent trikes... Um, hand cycles, running bikes. I read your mission and I love it. That it really is. It's a very, it's a macro view to stamp out isolation in communities. That's beautiful. Yeah, because the people who have disabilities, um, a lot will feel very isolated because you're only as disabled as your environment and what's the community around you. So if you can get people involved in communities, get them out in the community, a lot of this isolation will disappear. Part of a group, social interaction is very, very important. It's as important as the physical interaction that we do with the cycling. So take me back to your childhood and where did your love of bikes come from? Well, I've always loved cycling. Like I can remember going way back um, cycling my father's bicycle and putting my leg under the crossbar <laughs> and cycling it because the bike was way too big for me. <laughs> Um, going out beyond the range that I was supposed to go and not telling my parents of <laughs> that I was heading out towards Bandon or down in the direction of Yall. So I, I had a car when I was 17, but still the bicycle was my main mode of transport and it still is my number one mode of transport. I love the, the mental image of you describing that. Uh, no brakes on those bikes back then and freewheeling down. <laughs> well, that's we used to get bicycles out of the dump. The Cork City dump at that stage was on the Carragorahan Straight Road. And we used to get bicycles from there and bring them up to the field where the Cork University Hospital <laughs> is now based. At that stage, it was all mounds. People used to actually use it for motorcycle trials. And we used to bring the bicycle up to the top of the highest hill we could find and just go down. You yeah. didn't. Why do you want to stop? Why do you want brakes? You just keep going. Yeah. Now, sometimes we stopped and we hit the ground all right. I bet. I bet. Um, and when you became a dad, you uh, I'd never seen a three-seater tandem. You bought a three-seater tandem for your family. Well, my father got it for us for Christmas. Oh, go away. It's called a Me and You Two, and it's made by a company in England called Thorn Cycles, and they're in Somerset. And this one that we have is for an adult and two children. So when our own children were young... We used to go out on this three-seater bike. In fact, Roisin was at the back of it. Um, She used to fall asleep sometimes because we'd have a bag behind her on the carrier and she'd lean back and she'd actually go to sleep on the bicycle. And 
it's amazing the distance you could cover, but we used to also bring them to school on it. It's going holidays. We had a camper van and I made a rack for the back of the camper van to hold this very, very long articulated bike upright. Wow. Wow. So it's in your blood. <laughs> You've been cycling forever. So then why did, what inspired you to set up Cork Cycle for All? Well, I read an article on a cycling magazine called um, by an English cyclist and author called Dominic Gill. And Dominic cycled across America. First of all, he cycled the length of America from Alaska down to Chile on a regular tandem. And while he was doing that, he met a man in California who had a disability. And this man said that he had lived in America all his life, but he had never gone across his own country and he would love to cycle across it. So when Dominic came back to England, he researched what type of bike would be suitable and he came up with a bike called a Haze Pino. And he got one of these and he got back to America. But unfortunately, when he got back to California, the gentleman who was supposed to go with him wasn't capable of doing it. But Dominic decided that he was still going to do the journey and he went across America from west to east, picking up people with disabilities as he went. And I thought this is an absolutely fantastic idea. And like I've had a few injuries myself. And so I started um, researching it. We bought a tandem, a regular tandem, that Claire, my wife and myself, used to use. So I started taking people out on that. And it just went from there. So you, you, as you mentioned there, you've had a few of your own injuries. You've had accidents. So you've had a brush with what it could feel like to, to have a disability, haven't you? I've come pretty close on a few occasions, but thankfully I'm still walking around and everything. Um, but I have a, an appreciation of what it's like for somebody with a disability and how important it is that somebody with a disability is integrated into society. Because what you must remember is that you're only as disabled as the environment in which you're in. Yeah. By that I mean, for instance, if you're a wheelchair user and you want to go somewhere but there's steps, you can't go there. But if a ramp is put in or a lift is provided, now you can get in there. So it's the same with cycling. You're limited by the style and the type of bikes that are out there. And bicycles can be adapted. There's tricycles if you have balance issues. There's tandems out there if you can't cycle on your own that you can go on the back. There's hand cycles there if you have a spinal cord injury or if you maybe have an amputation or your legs just aren't strong enough, you have a hand cycle. There's also a running bike then that somebody maybe with a hip injury or knee injuries, it's like an elliptical trainer, yeah. but it's attached to wheels. I, uh, you've, As you said, you mentioned there, you've had your fair share of brushes and, and scrapes. But I, I really like how you met your wife, actually, was one of your scrapes, wasn't it? That was a, a funny story. I got my kneecap removed in 1984 uh, I had a crash on a motorbike. I was a pillion passenger in 1969 mm-hmm. and I damaged my knee and I had a bent knee from 1969 up to 1984. And um, I got my kneecap removed in 1984 and I was in having physio and I was in, my own physiotherapist was a girl called Ludmilla. And I said to Ludmilla that I will cycle a bike for Christmas because they had told me I may not bend my knee again. And when I said I'd cycle a bike for Christmas, the physiotherapist in the room next door, who was treating a patient, Claire, she said, if you do, I'll buy a bottle of champagne. I said, go in, go in, get it. Now, 
I never got the champagne, mind you. <laughs> but I got something a hell of a lot better. I got a wife. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Life is funny, isn't it? <laughs> it is funny, but it's great. Yeah. Like, out of adversity comes good. Yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's the story of your life. Um, you were describing some of the bikes. Um, you started repairing hand cycles for the Rebel Wheelers. Tell people what the, who the Rebel Wheelers are, William. Rebel Wheelers are an amazing group in Cork. It was set up by parents of children with disabilities. So that there's a sports club for children with disabilities. And they have their own hand cycles and wheelchairs and all that. And I was at a basketball event up in Neptune Stadium to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the stadium. And there was a wheelchair um, basketball exhibition game on. And I spoke to Paul Ryan after it. Paul is the sports development officer with Irish Wheelchair Association. Mm -hmm. And I got involved with um, wheelchair basketball and wheelchair sport. And I'm a plumber by trade. So I have a mechanical background and I started helping them out and repairing the hand cycles and the wheelchairs and that type of thing. Brilliant. And, and so that's where kind of your ability to sort of get, actually fix these machines to suit people. Is that fair enough to say? So well, it's more than fixing them. It's adapting, adapting them, them yeah. to, to suit people because everybody has different issues that will stop them from cycling a bike. The inspirational Mark O'Donoghue of Cork Cycle for All talking to Brendan Courtney this morning. you may have been wondering where have all the wonky vegetables gone I know I was and that was the question that Claire Byrne put to James O'Donnell vegetable farmer from Ardmore in Waterford and Michael Kelly founder of GIY Grow It Yourself and presenter of Food Matters on RTE One this morning James had brought some rejected parsnips with him and Claire wondered what the problem with them was These to me look absolutely grand but what's wrong with them? They're just... They're just too marked. Um, the spec that the supermarkets want, they don't. They don't want any marks whatsoever on on, on the okay. parsnip. Okay, so I see some darker marks on them here. Mm. But if I peel that, it's gone, is it? It's perfectly fine, to be honest. Yeah. But it's so, being rejected. Yeah, it's being rejected. The year that we've had, it's just been a, a disastrous with, with weather. We've had a lot of bruising, um, which any of the two you have probably aren't bruised really. It's, it's literally crown rot is one of the diseases and, and cavity spot. Just the, the wet and mild, so wet for mm. for so long, it's it's been just it, it causes that. And in normal years, we might have maybe twenty percent waste with it. Unfortunately, this year it looks like we'll roughly around I'd say seventy percent I think waste at the moment. And is that solely from the weather? Mostly, yeah, pretty much. To be honest with you, yeah, if they get to even harvesting like bruising then as I said you don't have one there but that they're, they're a big factor as well if the weather is bad mm-hmm. looking off the last 10 days it's got a chance to dry out a, a small bit so that's not being a factor the last two weeks But So even though it's December you're still harvesting are oh, you? Oh yeah harvesting we normally would be up to well April end of April even for ourselves but I'd say this year the end of January will be our mm. push I'd say unfortunately Can you peel these and sell them as peeled prepared products? 
the, the processors really want to parse probably twice the size of what you have there. They oh. don't really want one that's as small as that because they dice them and it, they just don't. There's too much waste for them on, on that parcel, unfortunately. OK. Yeah. And the crown rot that you spoke about, mm. I, you don't have that, that on these ones. That's right? one on the shoulder there, just on this side. Yeah, that's a small this version. One? Yeah, it, it, you, you, we are throwing away ones. We're not even picking them in the field that are about maybe 10 times worse than that. You, you can see them so clearly, you mm. just leave them after you. So they're not saleable anyway. But it's the ones that just have a little bit, um, like they don't even want you to cut that off while you're grading them at home. If you cut that off, they still they still reject that. Okay, and this um, parsnip here mm. that has a little bit of crown rot. Yeah. Does that affect the flavour of this parsnip? None whatsoever. Oh, you're laughing at me now. Yeah. If you cu- if I cut that off or peel that off, it's no, fine. Fine, yeah. yeah. And what are you doing with all of these parsnips that you can't sell into the supermarkets? Well. <sighs> The 60% that we can see waste in the field is left in the field while we're picking. Um, the 40% maybe that we bring home, the 15% waste that we're throwing away of that is going to fam- far other farms for um, animals. Feed. Animal feed, yeah. feeding pigs and so on. Yes. Yeah, and you have a big bag of uh, parsnips with you yeah, there as well. Yeah. Are they all parsnips that can't be sold into supermarkets? Pretty much, yeah. And yeah. they're all looking like this with yeah. the little marks on them. Yeah, yeah. So... What are you saying? Are you asking for shoppers to to change their mind about buying things like this, or is it more about what the supermarkets want? Well, I, I do think over the last week I go to the supermarket myself every week to have a look and see what the competition is like. Um, they have they have come back a small bit on their certain supermarkets have come back a small bit on their spec um, as regards allowing ones that are a little bit cut, cuts, off, cuts off of them uh, a little bit smaller because yield yield this year has been another problem it's, their parsnips are a lot smaller so mm-hmm. they're allowing maybe six in a tray whereas before they ideally want three or four they don't want that many in it but um, yeah if, if people could well more so shop local if they could of course at all but where they can just think of the actual work that goes in I mean for too long unfortunately veg has been sold too cheaply and people have lost the respect, I think, to be honest, of what, of what the veg actually mm-hmm. is. Um, so I, I would say just if they could look past the little mark that's on it. And uh, probably I, the main reason as well is at the moment that the price of parsnips has risen a little bit on the supermarket shelf. And maybe then they want the quality to be that little bit higher then, right. of course, as well. So it's it's kind of a catch-22. You grow carrots as well, do you? I do. And yeah. how are they this year? Mm. Okay. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of a lot of waste starting to appear now because of all the rain that fell. There's a lot of them rotting. I, I it's not just us. I, I see a lot of big, we're a small grower. A lot of big, a lot of bigger growers are going to be in trouble come March and April. I can see a lot of foreign veg going mm. to be on our shelves. Unfortunately, what's going on with that? Is that because farmers have diverted into beef in recent years, or is it more to do with climate change? I, I well, this year has just been uh, weather perfect storm. Yeah. Since, since a very dry, you could say a very dry February to a very wet March to a very dry kind of April, start of May. And then from July, middle of July on, it's been just a deluge of rain. Um, and that has definitely caused it. I mean, it's not just Ireland. England are in big trouble as well with their carrots and parsnips mm-hmm. and Brussels sprouts seems to be, they, they all seem to be a scarcity. So it's going to, I think it's going to lead to price increase o- overall. Right, so we might see the prices mm. going up. So Michael, to bring you in here, uh, we have seen a big drop in vegetable farmers here in Ireland, haven't we, in recent years? Yeah, unfortunately we have. Uh, Claire uh, Borbia uh, reported a couple of weeks back there that um, in, the, in the, the last census of field veg growers, I think it was 1998, there were about 400 um, and there's, there's less than 60 now. Mm-hmm. Um, which is absolutely unbelievable, really, when you think about 
I suppose, like, you know, it should be sort of the moment in the sun for Irish veg growers because, you know, all of the climate science and the all of the health science tells us we should be eating more vegetables. And I think, you know, many diets are sort of heading in, in that direction. Um, but actually, it's basically Armageddon for the for the Irish veg sector at the moment. And, you know, the the, the challenges of it, like it, it, James described it as a perfect storm. You've got all of the sort of commercial uh, challenges and the consolidation that's happening and the competition from imports and so on. But then climate change is, is you know, the, the big factor here because it's making things so unpredictable. Um, you know, obviously this year we've had this extraordinary sort of wet uh, year, as James said. And then, you know, in the last five years, we've had three three major droughts. Um, so it's, yeah. it's not like it's settling into a sort of a, you know, a predictable pattern. It's just really unpredictable. And that makes it very, very difficult to adapt to. So I, I, I think... You know, James mentioned there that we will see a lot of imported veg on 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 the shelves in the in the new year, perhaps. And you'd be sort of inclined maybe to say, well, so what? You know, what's what's the difference? But I think there's made there's two major sort of flaws in that argument. The first one is, what happens if that supply dries up? And we've we've seen a couple of instances of that over the years, where you know, the, Spain and Holland and other places are having their own unpredictable climate weather. Um, or climate change related weather events. And so, you know, we, we were very vulnerable, I think, as an island nation. And we have this sort of, I, I, I think, a, a comfort blanket or almost like an illusion of our food security because we, we talk about how we produce, you know, nine times as much food on the island as, as, as our population needs. That would be all very well if all we ever ate was beef and dairy. But when it comes to vegetables and fruit and other t- other things that we need, we're, we're really, really vulnerable. We imported about 6 million tonnes of Irish mm-hmm. of, of horticulture produce last year. And, and then, Michael, um, when, we have someone, other... when we have someone like James who is growing vegetables here, we're saying, no, we don't like that because it's got a mark on it. Like that's, that's yeah, a consumer exactly. choice, isn't it? That's that is a consumer choice, and and you know the the other major flaw is that we've we've we're, we're what are we losing when it comes to you know replacing our Irish veg with imported produce? We're also losing out on flavour and nutrition. So this is where it gets serious, I think, for consumers. Like the further you travel from plot to plate, the the more you compromise on on flavour and nutrition. That's Michael Kelly, founder of Grow It Yourself and presenter of Food Matters on RTE One as well as vegetable farmer James O'Donnell. They were both talking about the problem of wonky vegetables on Clare Byrne this morning. Ray Darcy spoke this afternoon to Steve Cole from the UK's Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents about the, the pitfalls we can hopefully avoid this Christmas. This is public service broadcasting at its best, Steve. <laughs> It really is. It's very on mission for everyone, I think. It is, yeah. But but So you record all the accidents that happen in the UK. Um, how do you do that? It's a good question. In the main, uh, we uh, piggyback off different types of databases. That the, you know, So the government has to record certain types of accidents. So mm. we generally just bring together all of these different sources of accidents that the Scottish government publish, you know, the English government publish, and yeah. they'll they'll put them in different areas. Okay. So you might get some, yeah. So we we basically just 
tie everything together in a bowl, I think would be the best way of summarising it. So what we're interested here because of the time of the year are household accidents that specifically happen around Christmas time. Would you have a file, Mark, that? Uh, we do. We don't have this to a file, but we have a big press release and we, we talk to a lot of people every year about it because, look, it's one of the big times of year where there are an increase in accidents, you know, along within the UK, things like Guy Fawkes Night and New Year. Yeah. These are basically big occasions where everyone gets together and, uh, you know, puts up decorations and, you know, ignites things. I think it's probably a good way of summarising OK, OK. So, so will we start with the man on the ladder then, putting up the outdoor lights? Is, is Are there a lot of people who fall foul of that activity? I, you'd be surprised. I think the general trend with that is people that do that would probably do that at other times of year as well. That's quite ah, a common yes. sense one, isn't it? You know, we all know what to do. We've all seen that guy on a ladder and it's usually a guy, if we're honest, isn't it, um, yep. doing that. So, so that's not the most common thing. Usually at Christmas, the ones we see are a combination of Trips and falls, that's a huge one. That's the really big one. So, like, in, in the UK, uh, we saw 7,229 patients admitted to hospital last December with hip fractures, nice. and that was up 20% on the year before. Um, so, And that is particularly, unfortunately, that's essentially look after your granny there because it's usually, uh, you know, higher risk of women and a higher risk of women over 80. So that's a big one. That's the really big one. The other things, you know, there's the sort of home alone ladder type things that you see, but the big ones are generally also either people ingesting things, particularly children, you know, might eat something that they shouldn't do. And obviously uh, fires and burns because you tend to have more, you know, open fires, candles, that sort of stuff. But falls is by far the biggest one. And it's also the most commonly reported accident in Ireland. Um, so it's definitely an issue, you know, everywhere. It's also very, very avoidable. So that's the other thing we try and say is, you know, these are things that's quite simple to mitigate for people. How do you avoid them? I think for falls, it's things like, you look, your house is going to be busier and it's going to be more cluttered this time of year, isn't it? You know, you've got more relatives mm. coming over. You've got, uh, you know, there's presents, there's decorations. Mm. It's essentially just trying to keep an eye on things. And one of the really basic tips that we say to people is just, you know, take your time a bit because it can be quite a manic time of year and try and tidy up, try and clear the floors, try and make sure that things like, um, you know, you've got your, your Christmas lighting cables, they can often be quite inconspicuous. They can be quite, you know, especially these ones you get now uh, that are relatively thin, dimly coloured, and you can miss them quite easily. Mm. So try and just think about where do people walk in your house? Where are people going to go? Uh, And obviously the really basic one is, like, don't commit to doing risky stuff like going up a ladder into the attic, putting up your lights outside. Don't do it alone. Don't do it unsupervised. Just think about what would happen, you know, if you saw that on a building site, for example. You you literally aren't allowed to do that. So trying to think about it in that way. So, So I was reading there that people attempting to get things from the attic on their own, on a ladder, that's that's an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, exactly. That That is a tricky one. And it's yeah. just about, you know, making sure you've got essentially a spotter or a prop or someone who's helping with that. And obviously really basically like, you know, where's the light switch when you go up into the attic? You know, I know if I go up into my attic, the light switch is in the attic. So if it's dark, have the light on the room below. Do you have a head torch? Is this, you know, just things like that, yeah. making sure you can see. Planning. And for a lot of people... Yeah, exactly. And it's not like big planning. It's 30 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) And Steve, from your information and your research, would you know if falls, if there's drink involved or is there ice involved or would you have that sort of information? 
So there can often be both, and that is one of the reasons for the increase at this time of year, I think, for the increase in falls. Obviously, there's just more people in houses and more clutter, but also, mm. yeah, like people drink a bit more uh, this time of year, um, you know, especially, you know, I'm from Scotland, it's that, you know, it's, that's the season for it. So there's a bit about drinking in moderation and also keeping an eye on maybe, you know, when we're saying about look after your granny, are you always topping up her wine glass? Are you always, you know, are you offering her another little drink? Maybe just think carefully about that with mm. people who are vulnerable. Yeah. And then, yeah, obviously, you know, it's been an exceptionally cold spell over here. I've, my, my friends in Dublin tell me it's been very similar has, with you. Yes. Um, so, yeah, look, the ground's going to be slippery. Okay. Um, so it's about just things like, you know, making sure you're keeping an eye on, you know, gritting places. Um, also, the other one for that, not necessarily for falls, it's just about travel. It's just about checking um, where, you know, what you've got in the car. Do you have warm clothes? Do you have torches? Do you have your tires checked, your mm. fluids, all of that sort of stuff. And in, so, yeah, but ice is definitely a contributor. And little people ingesting things, what sort of things do they ingest? Um, so the big one I think to think about is obviously we've got a lot of really fun like novelty Christmas decorations these days, like much more so than you know when I were growing up. But I think these aren't toys; um, they are actually decorated, so they don't have the same sort of patent testing standards as you would have for children's toys. Mm. So just be very careful with them because they're very very attractive to children, but they're often not safe in the same way. Um, the other one is also just making sure you're buying age appropriate toys for children. I, this is probably less of a parent issue than more of a like you know an uncle or an aunt or a friend just check the age of the kids you're buying stuff for. Yeah. Um, and also I think another one with that is about where are you buying these from because because actually you know pop up shops, market stalls, often on, online as well like things like eBay, um, those aren't always having the same guidelines and safety guidelines that you're going to have if you're buying something at say Dunn store or something like that. Yeah. So I think that's important. And you mentioned uh, fires, so more likely to have a fire lighting, make sure there's a fire guard, uh, more candles, so be safe with those. What about Christmas lights? Since most lights are now LED, are they safer than the old ones? So, yes, in terms of things like people swallowing them and people burning themselves, replacing bulbs and uh, electrocutions and all that sort of stuff, they are safer. We don't have numbers on exactly how much safer. Yes. But obviously they are still a trip hazard and the obvious other classic one is don't overload your plug sockets. Like just, you know, they still have this, you know, you still have the same issues there. You still do see fire starting because people have put, you know, multiple plugs into a block and things like that. So get yourself a a socket board as opposed to using a triple adapter in a triple adapter in a triple adapter. Exactly yes. that. Exactly yeah. that. I think a, a good, like a good peace of mind check in this. It, you know, if you think you've seen it in Home Alone, don't do it. <laughs> right, that's, that's probably quite a good safety tip. <laughs> Sensible advice from Steve Cole from the UK's Royal Society for the prevention of accidents on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. Let's be careful out there, folks. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, you don't have to be a petrol head to be a car lover, especially given the fossil fuel connotations of that nickname. But if you do like cars and you do like watching TV shows about cars, you're running out of time and luck because both the BBC's Top Gear and Amazon Prime's Grand Tour are ending. So what's a car lover to do? 2FM's Carl Mullen and the Sunday Independent's motoring editor Geraldine Herbert spoke to Claire Byrne this morning about the state of car-related entertainment. 
Top Gear was still getting big numbers, Geraldine, wasn't it? Like four and a half million people watching that programme with the BBC. Did you watch it? Yeah, and I think actually... The last um, series, they were finally beginning to gel, the three guys, where it had taken a long time. But I think ultimately it became more a show about making TV rather than a car show. And I think that really was shown by pushing the limits to what they did. And, you know, the accident that that happened. I mean, the the poor guy, Freddie Flintoff, had what life changing injuries. And it seems to have been fairly serious. And I think that really just captured the point that, you know, this this had just Mm -hmm. gone too far. And it had gone from, if you remember, Angela Rippon in the first days of Top Gear, it had started very much about journalists driving Ford Fiestas, let's be honest. And it had ended up with as a stunt show that, you know, so I think it kind of captured where where the show had gone in some ways gone wrong. it was more about TV yeah, than and the for cars. The, for the regular audience, that older version was was good because it was really about testing cars, wasn't it, Carl? You got it, to see if you were interested in maybe buying one or having it, a look around. You got to see what they were like. It was, but I do think, you know, Top Gear really, um, they got very good at creating that event TV, yeah. you know, and like you say, it was about pushing the boundaries and pushing it out further and further. And even to the point where Richard Hammond was nearly killed in an accident when he was racing a a rocket car. So it went very, very far. And I'm surprised it it wasn't rested before now, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But it feels like they should have rested Top Gear after the incident happened um, with Jeremy Clarkson punching the producer. Um, Because that was one of those things where they just needed to give it a rest then. It was always going to be a poison chalice taking over it. And, you know... Did you think the new team worked at all then when the Jeremy Clarkson crew left? I think no matter who you put in there, it was never going to replace the three lads. They were like three best mates who were driving around, having the best job in the world, travelling around the place, Mm -hmm. driving incredible cars. It didn't really matter who you put in there. I think they had started to gel the new crew Mm. of Freddie Flintoff. But... It, it needed that distance yeah. because unfortunately you had that rivalry as well of now you had the previous Top Gear lads on Amazon mm-hmm. and then you had the normal Top Gear going still on the BBC and people were still trying to compare them. But was was it not working on Amazon either or, or what was going on there? So at Amazon they had initially been doing a studio show similar to what you would have had on the BBC but what they started to realise was people didn't really want that anymore. They wanted the event TV. They wanted the the travel show Top Gear turned more of a turned into more of a travel show than it was a car mm. show and it was about these challenges where they'd be going to these incredible places all around the globe and setting themselves these crazy challenges and that's why I watched them it was that sense of watching you felt like you were their mate mm. and you were along for the journey and I mean listen it worked it got me to sign up for Amazon Prime at the time when they moved across and it was it was very entertaining Probably wasn't a car show, but it was very entertaining. So what's happening in this uh, world of, of car shows then? Does this spell the end? Has something happened? Or is everybody online now do, making their own YouTube videos, Geraldine? Yeah, I, I think the problem with Top Gear after Hammond, May and Clarkson was they tried to replicate that chemistry and they could never do If they had reinvented it completely as a new show, I think it might have continued. And also it was a hugely important brand to the BBC, mm-hmm. let's be honest. It made something like 50 million a year. It was the most expensive, you know, better than Strictly in terms of exports and everything. But I think they didn't and I think that was one of the failings. I think um, the Grand Tour really brought the fans on board, but I'm not sure if it gained too many new fans in the sense it just seemed to go on for too long and it needed an edit button, I think, the problem yeah. with the Grand Tour. But I think now TV has become, and the audience have become so fragmented that if you look at any section now, it's not, TV is not really mm-hmm. geared around audiences in the same way anymore. But, but if, and you, I think if, if you want to YouTube, look at cars yeah. uh, now and see what they're like and look at the engine and look at the new ones, where are you going to find that? 
Well, you see, you can go anywhere because even car dealerships now have their own guys yeah. reviewing, reviewing cars. When, 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 when Top Gear started, that was a world that was exclusive to motoring journalists who got mm. that insight into cars. You know, you went to a car dealership and you got a short test drive and then you made your decision, probably based on what your father had bought or your family had bought before. So they opened up this whole new world. But that now, the internet has transformed that social media, TikTok. And I think what people are looking for now is kind of bite-sized chunks of information. They probably won't sit through. Uh, you know a car program anymore and I think the appetite for kind of mainstream TV and a car program is gone Mm -hmm. Where do you go for your fix? It would be the same YouTube and one of the real advantages of YouTube for me compared to what you would have got on the likes of Top Gear is that Anytime you were ever watching a show like this, it was never sp- information that was relevant to an Irish audience because the spec on the car might be different, the cost of the car would be different. Whereas now on YouTube, you've got some great Irish YouTubers. There's a guy called Nobby on Cars who does YouTube videos and he's reviewing the car that's coming to the Irish market and he's telling you the price that it will cost on the Irish market. And the great thing nowadays as well is that the technology is so good the people who are producing these videos, it's not like a shoddy thing that's just made in someone's shed. It is really top end content mm-hmm. that feels like what you would have got on Top Gear probably in the early 2000s anyway. Yeah, and they're doing well, are they? They are. Yeah. They Like, I mean, I, the YouTuber there, I mentioned Nobby on Cars, he's 35,000 subscribers and every week is putting up videos of various cars. And what about this Australian supercar blondie? Who is that person? She has an absolute huge following. So her name is Alex Hershey. I hope I'm saying that right. So she's an Australian social media celebrity and she lives in Dubai. So she has access to the most incredible cars you could ever imagine, as you know, you can tell there. And I think her YouTube channel is really very much that larger than life. Here is something that no one's ever going to drive, but this car does exist and it costs, you know, 10 times the price of your house. That's what you want to see though, isn't it? And that's that is what, car, what you want to see. That's what Top Gear did though. <laughs> yeah. It's that void that, um, that that's filling that Top Gear did, you know, was those sort of cars that you were never even going to see. You might see in London, but you'd never see on the streets of Dublin. That, that you know, I suppose that void has been filled now by people like that. Exactly. And she's doing numbers that like, you know, she'd probably laugh at Top Gear. She's 15.4 million subscribers on YouTube and billions of views across It's extraordinary. Videos. So the manufacturers of the cars then are probably fighting to get on. Well, in their interest, yeah. The slow death of linear TV's car show as viewed through the viewpoint of the Sunday Independence motoring editor Geraldine Herbert and 2FM's Carl Mullen on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. Drive sensibly, folks. And that's all I have for you in this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirathon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.